Welcome to Seeking Paradise, Reflections on Spirituality, Community and Justice. About 18 months ago, um, I was at the Extinction Rebellion protests in London and it was it was uh, night time and I was in um, Parliament Square. And this was at the point when the police were saying the only place people were allowed to protest was Trafalgar Square and they were trying to move everyone on who was anywhere else other than Trafalgar Square. Um, but there were, I was with a bunch of uh, Welsh um, Extinction Rebellion people and we were in Parliament Square and a bunch of people decided they weren't going to move. And so there were the, the road was shut down. There was no traffic on it. But there were about five of us who were sat in the road and said they were prepared to get arrested. And another about 20 people who weren't there to get arrested, but were going to hang around um, with the people who were going to get arrested. Um, the police came and said, we had to leave. We're going to get arrested if we don't move. And we said, OK. And we stayed. And then about 20 minutes went by. Um, I think someone had a guitar and was singing some songs and we were just kind of hanging around. And then about 30 police in a really kind of intimidating way kind of marched over en masse, outnumbering um, us. So they said, you've got to move, you've got to move, everybody move, you've got to move, everyone like... And everyone who wasn't sitting in the road and prepared to get arrested were told um, to go and people scattered. Um, uh, including me, I wasn't one of the people who was going to get arrested. I wasn't planning on getting arrested. Um, but I feel really bad. I felt really bad about leaving the people there who were going to get arrested because people in the daytime, there were like a hundred people cheering the people who were getting arrested. And these were kind of all on their own in the kind of dark nights. Um, there were legal observers as well, but I sort of didn't want to go all the way away. So I, even though I'd kind of been told to disperse, I sort of just went over the road a little bit and just sort of walked and did a kind of circle and walked around and kind of came back and tried to watch from a distance and waiting to see the last people get arrested because I just sort of didn't want to leave them on their own. And at that moment, I honestly kind of felt like in, in, in the, the story of Jesus's arrest, when Peter, it says he watched from a distance with that real kind of combination of guilt of wanting to be there, but also fear and wanting to not wanting to get in trouble yourself. And there was a real that that story kind of of being Peter being at a distance of being arrested, watching uh, the, the Jesus getting arrested. I've, I've kind of connected with that story in a real deeper way on that night. Um, I'm not particularly concentrating on that part of the story of, 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 the, of the Bible tonight. Um, but I just wanted to kind of put that context there, because I think that is the context of Easter, is, is, a, is a protest and a prophecy. That the last week of Jesus's life was um, a protest against the powers that be. And if we don't understand that, we don't, we're not really understanding the story. The other thing I want to say, take a picture down now. The other thing I want to say is that I'm not, um, I'm not a, a biblical expert or a scholar or a historian um, to start with. Um, 
I wanted to kind of make that clear that there's that I'm not you know there may be much more expertise in this room than mine and we can you know, have that discussion so I I think that's important to say um but if people are interested in kind of basically where my ideas are coming from um I'd, I'd kind of point them towards um a couple of books um the last week by John Dominic Crossan and Marcus Borg and um Zealot by uh, Reza Aslan um that's a lot of what I'm going to say is going to be from from these sorts of books so if you want to go further want to know where the ideas i'm talking about are coming from i'm not a historian who's done all the research myself i'm someone who's read books um and that's 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 your opportunity to go to go deeper the other context i really want to invite us to think about the other sort of theme to continue to think about is the kind of history we're talking about. Um, I'm going to mainly be talking about Mark's Gospel tonight, uh, which was written about the year 70. And so the other Gospels were probably a few years later than that. And so there's kind of two levels, two layers of, of, of what's going on in the story as we think about this, um, that I want us to kind of always keep in mind. There's like what happened in the year 30 as much as we can know anything about what happened in the year 30 with Jesus' death and also 40 years later mark or we don't know is a bloke called mark we just called it mark's gospel whoever wrote it it's now known as mark's gospel so as a shorthand let's say that the author is mark um mark wrote stuff stuff down in the year 70 about stuff that happened in the year 30 roughly um so there, there's kind of a question that we can always have in our mind is is the story being told about what's what happened in the year 30 and about what how it's being interpreted 40 years later with a different set of historical stuff going on and you know how much can we ever know pull those things apart it's difficult to say um but i think we can a little bit and it's worth um bearing those um to those things in mind i want to talk before getting into any sort of passages really tonight, um, I want to talk about the, a lot of the contexts to understand these stories, to get a sense of what the context is of what's going on, um, mainly in the year 30, but also a bit about in the year 70 when, when, when it's being written down. Um, and my main point tonight is the context is a colonial context. The context is colonial. Uh, what does that mean? It means the story is about Jesus and other Jews in, in, in a Jewish context of, of a Jewish people who are colonized by the Roman Empire, who um, have gone through through all the complexities of history or in a situation of, of being suppressed, of being invaded, of being um, exploited, of taxed diminish their sense of selfhood, their sense of peoplehood, their sense of nationhood. Um, and everything that happens, happens within that context. And everything in Jesus's entire life is in the context of colonialism. And in the, con and, you know, Jesus was a Northern Galilean Jew, um, not, not a kind of metropolitan city dwelling uh, person, but someone from the, the, the peasants area uh, where people were uh, generally 
surviving on, on, on rural um, being farmers. And what did the, 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 the colonial system mean for those who were northern Galilean peasants? It meant their lives were governed by a domination system, um, as there have been many different manifestations of domination systems. Um, but this is a, one particular domination system under the Roman Empire. And that means, that means life is hard. Life is hard. According to Marcus Borg, and I think he applies this generally to ancient societies, um, your life expectancy, if you survive childhood, if you're a peasant, if you're in the kind of peasant uh, rural class, uh, would be about 30. As opposed to if you were a member of an elite of the society, your life expectancy would be 60 to 70 if you survive childhood. And so that that difference to think of the difference, the inequality of a kind of a society where the, the elite have a life expectancy of 60 to 70 and those at the bottom and the majority have a life expectancy closer to 30 gives a sense of what, you know, what's going on here. And particularly in the first century, there was a transfer of wealth from the poor to the rich um, through land. So most families would have had, had a land, they would have been kind of, a family that had its little bit of land that they they farmed and they used and they, they sold the crops etc and that was theirs what was happening more and more in the first century was that more families were getting into debt um, because of the taxes they had to pay and the only way to pay off debt um, was to sell off land so they went from being smallholders to being tenant farmers and the land being something that they had a sense they had um ownership of um to something that they had they was owned by someone else and they still had to work it uh but the wealth transfers much more to other people not to themselves and their lives became more precarious because of this um imperial tax system um may have taken up to in some circumstances 50 percent of the crops they grew was taken to rome um, and it was taken to Rome via Jerusalem. We'll come back to that. Um, so we're talking about, in some ways, effectively a 50% tax rate on the poorest of the poor. That's the context of a northern peasant prophet. And the people that he talked to and the people he engaged with, working, doing the work in, in the northern Galilean area, and announcing an empire of God. Uh, an empire that was an anti-empire kind of stand standing against the empire of Rome to say the empire of God means something that isn't the empire of Rome and an empire of, of justice for the poor and of freedom from the oppressed. So that's one of the contexts. More specifically still, um, the context is Passover. It is the, the, the events that I'm inviting us to think about the events of Jesus last week that we call Easter um, happened in the context of, of Passover, which is a Jewish festival of liberation. So I, the, the, the comparison we could make of what that might mean for us to understand it, if we imagine that, imagine a situation um, that China invaded the United States, imagine that situation. Imagine that the USA was occupied by a Chinese army and that was a part of a Chinese empire. If that was the case, what do you think the, the 
the authorities would be worried about as we approach July 4th, Independence Day, an American holiday celebrating freedom. Those authorities in an occupied, in an imagined occupied America would imagine, well, there might be protests, there might be stuff going on. It might, it is sort of a holiday, a celebration as well, but actually it's a celebration of freedom. And so any kind of occupying army in a, an American context, if we can imagine such a thing, um, would certainly think let's bring some extra troops into Washington DC because we don't know what might happen. There might be protests we need to suppress. There might be uprising, there might be terrorism, there might be stuff happening. Let's just have a bit of a clamp down in Washington DC, in the capital city. That's the kind of context we're talking about as we talk about Passover in Jerusalem in the year 30. We're talking about a situation that is uh, worrying for the authorities. And the authorities, um, Pilate would have come from, from the more Roman city where he lived into Jerusalem with an army to just hold things down in Jerusalem. At the same time, uh, Jesus, uh, this um, prophet comes into Jerusalem from the other side of the city uh, causing a crowd, certainly, uh, if nothing else. What, there's something going on here. There's something worth um, worrying about. And we, there's all kinds of details we can think about. What, what, how many of these details of Jesus coming in happened in the year 30? How much did Mark kind of want to tell the story in that way in the year 70? We can, we, we can talk about that. And then... Um, Going, thinking more textually about the text of the Gospel of Mark now, um, what happens next is this, um, this weird thing with a fig tree. This is kind of a leaflet, which is slightly satirical, saying God hates figs. Um, there's this weird thing that happens in Mark's Gospel where Jesus comes in and there's a fig tree and Jesus wants some figs. But there's no figs because it's not even the season of figs. And Jesus says, damn you, fig tree. Um, <laughs> words to that effect. Um, and then later they come back and the fig tree doesn't have any figs on. And that's like, sometimes you're reading the Bible and you're like, what the hell is that about? There's just something that's weird that's going on. Um, <laughs> something is weird. Um, I want to just hold on to that and come back to that later. But just, just remember there's this, uh, there's suddenly in, the, in, the, in a story that seems to make a certain amount of sense there's suddenly this weird thing of of a fig tree um and we'll come back to that the other thing i want to talk about now is what happens kind of next in the story is jesus goes to the temple he goes into the the temple in jerusalem it's important to understand what the temple is I mean, obviously, the temple is a religious building. Um, it's a, there's a sense, so there's a theology of this being God's dwelling place on earth. Um, certainly, God existed beyond the temple as well, but there was a sense in which which God um, dwelled, especially God's presence was especially in the temple. But it was also a center of political and economic power. I think we have to think of the temple again, to use uh, an example of something like both the Houses of Parliament 
and Westminster Abbey and the headquarters of HMRC all in one building. It is both a religious building and a political building and, a, and an economic building and a building that is coordinating those taxes that are going to the Roman Empire are coordinated by the temple authorities. And the high priest is a very political role as well. Again, it's almost like a combination of the prime minister and the Archbishop of Canterbury. It's both of those things. It's a political as well as a religious role. So, so there's a level in which this is a theocracy. And so to, you know, to, to separate religion and, and politics is very difficult to do. Um, but I think it's important that we have in mind that this is not this is religion that is not unrelated to what's going on politically, what's going on economically. So it's a literally the tax system. So let's get into a actual um, text. I think this sort of works me putting it up here. Um, Mark 11, if you're... Um, if you've got a Bible, if you're interested in following along, I'll, I'll read it out, but it's kind of there. I think you can see most of it. Um, and on Zoom, it's backwards when I look at it. So <laughs> I think I'm looking at it, trying to read it, think, oh, I think that looks right. Um, so from Mark chapter 11, verse 15, they came to Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And they overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching, saying, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. When the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him, for they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out to the city. So this is the, the major prophetic action that we see um, Jesus uh, performing. He causes a blockage, he stops business as usual happening, and he quotes uh, Jeremiah. It's worth exploring what he's quoting when he's talking about den of robbers. He's quoting from the book of Jeremiah, which is a passage that is criticizing the temple um, in, in that particular context a few hundred years earlier. I'll, I'll read out this in full as well, because I think it's worth getting a sense of maybe this was on Jesus' mind as, as he did this. Jeremiah 7 from verse 3, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your doings and let me dwell with you in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If For if you truly amend your ways and your doings, if you truly act justly with one another, if you do not oppress the alien, the orphan, and the widow or shed innocent blood in this place. If you do not go over other gods to your own hurt, then I will dwell with you in this place in the land that I gave, gave of old to your ancestors forever and ever. 
Here you are trusting in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make false offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are safe, only to go on doing all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your sight? You know I too am watching, says the Lord. So this is uh, angry stuff. This is a kind of uh, angry prophetic tradition, a, 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 a prophetic protest song. And if you're um, a Galilean peasant struggling under a 50% tax rate, then that's if you're, you know, managed to have a family and be functioning in, in a in a reasonable way if that's true for for most people certainly the poorest the orphans the widows those without a family system to to support them without a social safety net um, are going to be uh, suffering under under such a system you're totally screwed if you're an orphan or a widow and so that's that's jeremiah's point and i think it's jesus's point as well saying do you think god is okay with this just because you're in this beautiful temple no Hell no. The message is that God's dwelling in the temple is conditional. It's not unconditional. It's conditional. It's conditional on justice. And without justice, God's temple is spoiled. It's a den of robbers. And so that's the kind of the, the textual context of this action in the temple that we have a story of and if there's one thing i'd want you to take from what i'm going to say today is 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 the importance of the temple protest this is what gets jesus killed and if you tell the story of jesus's death without telling the story of the temple protest as essential as a real central part of the dramatic kind of story that, 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 we, that we, we move through imaginatively this week, then you're going to be telling a distorted story if you miss that bit out. The temple protests is enough to get someone killed. It's, it's enough to get someone executed. It did get him executed. The temple protest is the Easter story. It is the Easter story. It's a story of a prophet who challenged the powers that be and got killed for it. Now, let's return um, to the fig tree. Again, as I say, Jesus cursed the fig tree, and then he goes to the temple, and he curses the temple, and then he comes back, and the fig tree is, is withered, and it's died. Now, this is clearly... It doesn't make any kind of sense. It's just silly if you take it literally as like this happened. It's just this is very silly. It doesn't really make any sense. Um, but if you take it as kind of this this parable, Mark is putting into this into the way this story is being told a detail. Jesus curses the fig tree. The fig tree died. Jesus curses the temple. The temple is destroyed. Because the, the most significant thing that happened between um, these events, 
what in, in the year 30 what happened with Jesus' last days on earth um, and what happened when Mark is writing his gospel in the year 70 the most significant thing difference there is 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 the war that happens and the destruction of the temple which happens about the year 70. In the year 66 uh, a Jewish war of rebellion starts which is eventually crushed uh, by the Romans savagely crushed by the Romans. It ends in this siege of Jerusalem uh, and the Romans destroying the Jerusalem temple. And we really can't overestimate the significance of that event. It's, it's massive. It's also horrific. It's, if you read um, Simon Sebag de Montefiore's um, Jerusalem and biography, he starts, he goes back further than this subsequently, but he starts with this event that happens in Jerusalem, this um, just really disturbing genocidal event of, of you know, really the sort of worst kind of 20th century genocidal kind of descriptions of, of, of a massacre that you can think of. That's what happened uh, with the, with the kind of the, the people who are fighting the freedom fighters and also the civilians caught up who happens to, to still be in Jerusalem in that siege. Horrible, horrible event. Um, twinned with this symbolic event of the temple being destroyed, the sense of, of, of God's dwelling place on earth being destroyed, a, 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 a such a traumatic event for, 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 for Jewish religion, for Jewish nationhood, um, that will never ever be the same again after that event. And this is when Mark writes his gospel, when these events are, are, are happening. And so Mark is able to, to, to make it look like Jesus predicted um, the destruction of the temple and, and with this thing of the, the fig tree kind of spells it out. Um, Mark's context is is a context in which Jewish nationalism has been shown to be really, really dangerous. And Mark's probably writing in Rome, uh, so it's a different context. And and this is a con so this is a time when thousands of people have just been slaughtered for the for kind of for, for a Jewish freedom fighting Jewish nationalism. And so this is also a context in which many Christians are now not Jewish. Uh, there are many Gentile Christians as well, 40 years later. And so Mark begins to tell the story and the other gospels do it even more in a way that makes Jesus seem uh, less of a Jewish nationalist. And you can see you can see why you can see if events you've just heard about these events about horrible things happening in, in jerusalem that this and this uprising being crushed you don't want to really want to associate jesus with that with, with his language with what he's saying with these zealots zealots um have just been killed but we really have to pay attention to what that means that shift that that mark and others are making because what we have here is, is really the roots of Christian anti-Semitism because the story begins to be told in a way that makes the Romans seem not so bad and deliberately tries to shift the blame um, onto the Jews. Just gonna lift up, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna read out this text um, but you can sort of see in the background from, from Mark 15, the the, the 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 thing that happens with Pontius Pilate 
so there's there's the, the passage when Pontius Pilate talks to the crowd and they say crucify him and I think that I think it's worth saying that's <laughs> it's absolute rubbish it's absolute rubbish I'll say why in a minute but first I want to talk about reading um i need to come to an end soon so i will do first i want to talk about reading against the text um this to me is an example of i think what i'd call reading against the text or resistant reading sometimes i think the faithful reading is is the resistant reading so another example i'd give would be christian letters that say women shouldn't speak in church women shouldn't teach in church because you can think, well, if someone is saying that, it probably means there are women teaching in church. Otherwise, why would they need to say it? So we can ask, what's the story of the women who are teaching in church? What's their story? And we can ask, put a resistant reading to this, this a scripture that's, that's a, a piece of writing that's saying one thing. And we can say, well, what's the other side of the story? And if they're insisting so hard, why are they insisting so hard on something? So when we have this story that goes out of its way to say that Pilate was just this really reasonable guy and it was these Jews that made him do it, we have to ask what's going on. What's the faithful story we get to when we read against the text? Because Mark and the other gospel writers are going out of their way to shift the blame from the Romans to the Jews. And it's even worse in Matthew where the crowds say, let his blood be on us and our children. These are the roots of Christian anti-Semitism. These are anti-Semitic texts, I, I would say. And I think Christian churches should be not, not really use them unless they're going to really explore the anti-Semitism inherent in this and, and how it's been, uh, how that's played out in history. Because do we not know what kind of man Pontius Pilate was? We do. Let's go back again to the level of what's going on in the year 30. Roman governors would have been very happy to put people to death. It was something they did all the time. It was a bit of admin, if you like. But Pontius Pilate was one of the worst. Someone made an official complaint against Pontius Pilate saying, I think he's crucifying too many people. I think, oh, we all like crucifying people, but I think he's probably going a bit too far. He was trigger happy with his crucifixions. He was like a governor of Texas times a thousand with lots of executions in his time. He signed lots of death warrants. Wasn't particularly, you know, probably wouldn't have been interested in meeting the people he was, he was signing the death warrants of. It was admin. So a lot. I think we have to take a lot of this as total fabrication. And, and now, as a rule, it doesn't. Really, I'm not saying everything that that we could say is total fabrication. The Bible is a bad thing. It doesn't make it in its in itself. That doesn't make it illegitimate or not interesting. I mean, not none of the Bible is trying to tell accurate history in the way we would write a history book today. None of it is doing that. Um, that doesn't mean it's not not good and interesting. The fact that it's not, it's a bit historically dodgy. But when you've got the fact that it's historically dodgy and that such texts are um, dangerously anti-Semitic, uh, I think we have to look at some texts and go, yeah, no, yeah, no. And I think we're generally losing a more more accurate and more relevant picture of Jesus by by following a kind of domesticated story that downplays Jesus's Jewishness and his anti-imperial message. And the Palm Sunday sermons that knock around from, from, from year to year saying that, 
on Sunday they were cheering him on and saying uh, Hosanna, and on Friday they were saying crucify him. I'm sorry, that's bullshit. The people who were cheering on Sunday were not saying crucify him, crucify him on Friday. They were still on his side on Sunday and on Friday. And equally, the Roman imperial authorities were equally, equally against him on, on Sunday and on Friday. Because however much the story gets told in a different way, crucifixion is a Roman punishment. That's a fact we can't get away from. Crucifixion is a Roman punishment for sedition. And the only reason anyone would ever be crucified is because of anti-imperial action. And those of us who may be struggling today against different domination systems, against empires of, of, of late capitalism and neocolonialism um, that are causing the climate crisis we're in at the moment, I think in, in that Jesus remains um, an inspiration and a model that's still worth engaging with in these stories. <laughs>